0: I'll be reading, continuing through the book of Revelation, chapter 8. Last week we looked at the opening of the coming of the blowing of the trumpets, specifically at the use and incorporation of the prayers of the saints into the mighty workings of Christ on earth. And what we learned is this, that Christ, by his brilliant designs, has brought into his sovereign divine labors our prayers, however weak, however imperfect, however inconsistent, they are brought into his sovereign action and our labors on earth, our prayers, our ministry, the proclamation of the word are combined with Christ's sovereign power to bring judgment and glory upon the nations. And now we see that judgment poured out. In verses 7 through 13, the end of this chapter. Here as I read beginning in verse 7, the first angel sounded. Actually, let me go back to verse 6. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and all hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood." A third of the waters became wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. This far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's word. Lord, we come to you and we ask that we might receive to you the word as it has been given, that we would not shrink from its meaning, Even if these woes today are proclaimed against us, there is still time. There is time to hear the warning and repent and to flee to Christ and to be sheltered by his almighty throne. And I have said it already three times. We come to you, O Christ, because in you and you alone there is salvation. We flee to you, O Christ, because in you there is mercy. And there is salvation from the terrible judgment that is to come. And so we may we not be like those in the days of Noah who harden their hearts, but like Noah, flee to that ark of safety and be saved. O oh Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen. As we continue to move through this book, that is a record of a celestial heavenly worship service, we find components in it that are often lacking. And we find components in our worship today that are lacking in the scriptures. And we ask to ask ourselves, uh, are we not to be aligned with what we find in Scripture? Now, Revelation is not inherently at the center of the circle. As my seminary professor, Bob Kerr, used to say, you need to preach the center of the circle. Sometimes you can preach the outside of the center, but you at least need to know what the center of the circle is. And the center of the circle of the book of Revelation is what the worship of Christ looks like in heaven and the effect of Christ's lordship in heaven and on earth. And our worship whether it is in the basement of a home because there is the threat of persecution or it is in the free spaces in this country where we can worship freely and ought to worship freely. And when we are here, we ought to pray for the overthrow of unbelief and the tyranny of wickedness in this earth. We find our worship regulated and not just our worship, but our lives, our expectation about the future, how we are to approach Christ, what the ministry of the church is for and how it ought to look and what is to come as it relates to the terrible judgment of God against unbelief. And so when you come to worship, there ought to be something, not just because your particular pastor likes to get loud, that is just the default mode and you can ask my family this, it's the same everywhere I go, There is an inherent drama, even if your pastor is a bit more meek and mild. And the drama is this. Every worship service of the Lord Jesus Christ, or of the Triune Lord, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, ought to be one in which there is great drama that is built upon not melodrama, like some soap opera, cheap and fake, but that which is connected to the glory of Christ ascended and ruling and reigning on earth. And so when we look at these things in the book of Revelation and as we sing through the Psalms and the great hymns of the Reformation, there is always a theme, and that is this. You need to leave the flippancy of the regular world behind and you need to come and you need to eat meat because that's what your body, this is a metaphor, needs. Paul even says, I lament that you still drink milk like little babies when you should have moved on to the meat. What the Sabbath does is it beckons us to come and eat the good stuff. And so there should be woven into every liturgy, into every Lord's Day service, the echoes of revelation of Christ ascended, our prophet, priest, and king. And here we come to a section, and there are hard sections, especially for nice people especially for people that are perhaps more gentle and they don't wish to offend needlessly and none of us ought to wish to offend needlessly but at some point when it comes down to it if we read and proclaim the truths of the book of revelation there will be those who get their feathers all in a ruffle and they'll say how dare you what do you think you're doing But the heart of the gospel is actually found in the blowing or the summation of the first four trumpets. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. The gospel and the preaching of the word of God does not occur in a moral worship vacuum. We are all liturgical creatures. We worship something. And what Christ says is this. You either worship me, you either bow the knee to King Jesus, or you will perish in the way. That woe is not something we should graduate or move on from, but ever carrying around in our chests something of the warning of the gospel of Christ, dead, buried, risen, and ascended. Three points that I want to make this morning then. The first point, from freedom to bondage. Second, the judgments. Third, the woes. You could maybe say even the trumpets in that second point. Let's look at the first point, though, from freedom to bondage. This is not what you want. This is a reversal of the fortunes of Israel, and that is what we find being described here. These trumpets and the blasting of these trumpets are associated with the angels of which we've already read in chapter 6. And these accompanying of the first four seals are in some fashion given in the same pattern that the seals are. The first four are given, there is a relief, and then the second three with some space between the sixth and the seventh. It is the same with the trumpets. It is the pattern, a symbolic pattern of Christ's judgment first upon Jerusalem and then for Jerusalem as a template for all the nations. And what we need to understand is this about God's judgment. It is just, it is equitable, and it is fair. In this, all men are judged by the same messianic event in history, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross stands as not just a great salvific emotional event, but as the great legal event in human history. It is the watershed moment in which Christ himself is judged under the weight of God's, the God the Father, his wrath against ungodliness, and you are either with cross, Christ in union with him upon the cross, or you, ex- you are excluded from his sanctifying saving work. All men will be judged in Christ. You will not be judged according to your works. You will not be judged by your sincere faith in some other God or whether you are a good person. Only in Christ. This doctrine of the necessity of Christ's atonement lays to waste universalism, this optimism that even the pagan nations, this idea of the noble savage. I mean, look at your children for just a minute, parents. Is there any nobility in their savagery? (laughs) And they're sophisticated by comparison to the human flesh-eating natives of the South Pacific Islands. Those are savages. What I am saying is this all men at their root are not righteous. They're not blank slates waiting for the wicked culture to imprint upon them their wickedness. No, they are by nature creatures of wrath because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And Israel has heard it all, they've heard every sermon God had to preach. And despite all of those sermons, despite Moses, Abraham, the patriarchs, the prophets, the wisdom books, all of these declarations of God's love for his people, they were an adulterous, whoring nation. And there is stronger language even than that in the book of Ezekiel. Language that would turn my ears red if I were to preach through the book of Ezekiel. Maybe we'll get there one day. (laughs) When I'm old and I don't care anymore what you think about me. (laughs) They're strong. And why? Because the sins of men separate them from God. And God wants you to hate your sin as much as his justice and anger burns against your sin. So, what is being described here is this Christ blowing the trumpet, sounding the alarm, riding forth in battle now against Israel. Can you imagine such a sight? Can you imagine being a foot soldier and here comes the cavalry and they're coming 25 miles an hour clothed in full metal armor and you're there on the ground with a pole. The terror, the terror that these judgments are to inflict upon the hearts of men. It is the blowing of the trumpet in battle and how can a city stand if Christ moves against it? Not only that, but how can the city of God stand if they reject their founder, if they reject their redeemer? They are judged according to the righteous decrees of God. All men are. And it is the same standard. And this is the standard. You violate the law, right? Paul says in the Gospels, legally speaking, it is possible to be righteous before God except for this one essential qualification ever before you did good or evil. You were evil by nature of Adam's sin imputed to you. And that's what leads to actual sin. You are not given an out because you memorize the shorter catechism, because you've read the institutes of Christian religion, because you've never raised your voice to your children. All men before God stand condemned And Israel in particular, because they were given the prophets. They were given Moses. They were given the law, the tabernacle, the temple, all of these glorious revelations. The history of Israel, they betrayed. And chief among their betrayals is summarized in their confession. Not worship the lamb, but what? Crucify him. They let a murderer go free. They cried out for Barabbas, and they put Christ to death. That is the sum and substance of man left to their own devices. And so we'll be we fine in chapter 8. These trumpets and the trumpets that are to come are the covenant cursings for covenant breakers. Do not think that God is unfair, that he judges you according to a standard he does not judge another He judges us all according to the same revealed will. And every single man, woman, and child that has ever lived and is of right mind understands that concept. That they are made by God, they're made for God, but they have broken his law. And instead of bowing before Christ as the means of redemption, they suppress that truth and they exchange it for unrighteousness. Children, this should be a warning to you. Do not reject the faith of your parents. Now, when I say faith of your parents, I mean that faith, those truths, those principles that even now they are laboring with tears to instill in you and say, I'm going to go my own way. Because ultimately, you're not rebelling against your parents, are you? You're rebelling against the word of God. I'm not saying your parents are perfect. And I'm not saying your parents don't make mistakes. Because sure enough, they have. But the fact of the matter is, imperfect people are pointing you to a perfect God who is worthy of trust. And not just trust, but utter and complete devotion. And so what we find in chapter 8 is the judgment of God against a people who have utterly betrayed Him. And the language of deliverance And the actions of deliverance, which once were given to Israel, have been reversed. It is the excommunication of an entire nation. And that is what the language is symbolic of. Israel has become Babylon. They have become Sodom. They have become as Egypt. Do you see that language? Maybe that's what you think of. Hail, fire, blood, the sea becoming red with blood, the moon, the sun being struck, wormwood, bitterness, all of this apocalyptic language. Now, when I say apocalyptic language, stop thinking left behind. Stop thinking only futurist events. When God brings apocalyptic Judgment upon the nations, it has happened time and time and time again. It happened to Egypt, it happened to Babylon, it happened to Assyria, to Persia, to Rome, to Israel. It happens over and over and over again because it is the natural or supernatural, it is the righteous fruit of sowing rebellion against God. This is where Edwards gets the language of sinners in the hands of an angry God. And you say, well, wait a second. That doesn't preach in the 21st century. Is it the 21st century? It doesn't matter what century it is, does it? Do you know why it preaches? Because man doesn't change in their natural state before God. What has changed now in the church, especially in this country, is... If I tell my neighbors they're going to hell, they won't like me. And I'm telling you, that's okay. Better to be angry with you and right before God than right before you and under the hands and terror of a mighty, angry God. Better to be reconciled with Christ or at least make the attempt. How many times have you pled with people, Go see this doctor. Or your children, drive the speed limit. Stop looking at your phone while you're driving with ferocity and loud noise. Go here, do this. Don't drink that. It's poison. And yet when it comes to the things that really matter, why? Job? Friendship? How often do we forget the robust warnings of Scripture And what they're tied to. Covenant cursings for covenant breakers. All right, second point. Let's look at the judgments. Let's look at the trumpets and what they represent. We see first, trumpet one, destruction of trees and grass. Now, let's remember, this is symbolic, for the most part, language. Although Josephus records some interesting things about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., Like when Rome marched through and around the city and 11 miles out from the city wall of Jerusalem, they cut down every tree and plundered every garden. 11 miles, no trees. It's like these developments in Gastonia. Where is nature? Where does it happen to it? They've plundered it. But more than just the cutting down of trees, it is the destruction of Eden. Jerusalem was to be the city garden. It was to be the holy city in which at the very center of that city, Christ, would dwell and man and God would dwell forever. Yet man did what? They killed the Messiah in that city. They sowed salt into the soil, metaphorically speaking, and nothing could grow there again. Here is the problem with dispensationalism. That soil is spoiled and they're waiting for a temple that does not need to be rebuilt. The earth is the Lord's and what happened is a full and complete judgment against that old covenant system as a holding on to it as the only means by which we will know the Messiah. And Christ says what? Wherever you are, by the Spirit, where there is word, this is Jerusalem, right? It is because God's people are present together. And it's not just here, but when Christ says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the utter ends of the earth, what Christ is saying is not just how you ought to pattern your missions. You begin here and go that way and describing what would happen. What he is saying is, like Eden, Adam and his wife were to plant the garden, nurture the garden, and bring that idyllic, Presence of God, fellowship to the whole world with billions and billions of people. And that is still the mission. When Noah and his family left the ark, they were called to disperse, just like Adam and Eve were. And you know what they didn't do? They stayed put. They did not build the city of God. And you know what the result was? Godless men built a city. And instead of moving out into the earth to be a blessing to the nations, Christians stay put. Why? Why do we stay put? I love the idea of moving to a bigger piece of property. But do you know the great thing that keeps me from doing that? Is that I go up in my attic, and I'm going to have to move that. (laughs) And I got all this furniture. It's hard to step out your front door like Frodo, like Bilbo, and go into the big world and experience the danger that just, is just beyond your neighborhood. And the church falls into the same apathetic, maybe laziness, but really fearful patterns when what we are called to do is to step out in faith into the world and establish the kingdom of God. And here, God brings judgment upon Jerusalem, not only because they denied him as redeemer, but because they did not understand that Jerusalem was to be the center, the epicenter of the blessing of the nations. And instead, they became the epicenter of the cursing of God's covenant people. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they were leading their people in idolatry. Then there's the second trumpet, the striking of the seas with a mountain and a third of it becoming blood. Mountains are symbolic throughout Scripture. Jeremiah 51, verses 24 through 25, I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea for all the evil they have done in Zion in your sight, says the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain. Babylon here is described as a mountain, a place of power. And this mountain destroys all the earth, says the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against you, roll you down from the rocks, and make you a burnt mountain. So the next time you go to Hobby Lobby, and you see, and with faith as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. God is not talking about earthwork. He is talking about the work of the church and the overthrow of the nations. Israel is the mountain that will be thrown into the sea of the Gentiles. And it will burn before their eyes. And the Gentiles will look at them and they will say, May that not become like us. Now what that led to in Europe was an enormous amount of anti-Semitism. As though simply being born a Jew is what makes you a rebel. No, it is the active overthrow and rebellion of Christ's lordship. Let's get that straight, unless someone gets on social media and calls me an anti Semite. (laughs) It is simply because you do not confess Christ as Lord. And the whole of Israel, except for a, a remnant, a holy remnant, the apostles were all Jews. And so was every early Christian. Very few were brought until the day of Pentecost from other nations. But what we find in the judgment of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. is Christ is saying, These are the people among whom I will labor. And the great act of judgment of Jerusalem will strike fear and reverence and awe into their hearts. Even Jerusalem, while it was standing in Matthew 21, Christ says to them, And 24, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and flee from this city. follows then that the mountain is not just a place. What is a kingdom comprised of? It is a people. The glory and honor of that house was utterly taken away. This is the diaspora. It is the striking of that great nation. Though small, loved by God, it was stripped of its strength. Its glory was destroyed. It was humiliated by another pagan nation in Rome. And I alluded to it already, Matthew 21, and when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? Remember what Christ does? He withers the tree as a sign of what? what he will do to Jerusalem, what he will do to Israel. And he says, and he answered, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what is done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. This is why the scripture says, begin in the household of faith. Begin with the household of faith. The church must see. That though we wield spiritual means, the keys of the kingdom, they are nonetheless felt in this world in the overthrow of the nations. And so when Jesus says, if you act on faith, you will do as I did to that fig tree, the church withers the nations through the proclamation of the word. Unbelief cannot stand. Just see what will happen in the next 60 to 100 years in China. A one-party communist state cannot stand among a church, among a people who through the Spirit have been proclaimed to be free. This is not politics. Well, it is always politics, isn't it? You can't separate politics and religion because Christ is king. He's a king. And he's not a simpering king. He is a king that has trumpets and seals and messengers of fire. The gospel will transform the nations. And if you say, how? I will say to you, watch. And don't just watch in your short little life. Look at what he has done already. Listen, the covenant of grace first came to Abraham, who was impotent, and his wife was barren, and they were old to boot. And they had one son. And he had a son. And then that son had two sons. One of them abandoned the faith. He was of the seed of the serpent. Then that son had 12 sons. And then those sons in 400 years grew to about 2 million. And most of them perished in the wilderness because of their rebellion. Well, let's just take Christ and the apostles. Christ had died. One of them had betrayed him. This was not how you want church plants to go. Right You start with three families. that's how Reformation began. The pastor dies because one of the church planting families betrayed him. Can you imagine? The rest of the members are going, "What do we do? What do we do? That's the beginning of the New Covenant Church. And then at the day of Pentecost, Christ pours out the Holy Spirit. 3,000 are saved in one day, and since then, because of the Holy Spirit, the church has never ceased growing. And what Satan has tried to do since the time of the resurrection and the ascension is go whoa, 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 and he can't do it. He's always playing backup defense. He has no power. He is already but an angel, and now he is an angel whose power is bound because he has fallen, as we see in the scriptures. And now, trumpet three, the striking of rivers, the springs with a star, and bitter water. Wormwood is a strange word. And it's a word that we find in the scriptures over and over again, a handful of times. We see it in Jeremiah, we find it in Lamentations, and we find it in Amos. And it always refers to the judgment of God bringing the nations to bitter streams as a judgment. When you hear bitter water, what do you think? I think of Exodus chapter 15. And in Exodus chapter 15, Israel has been delivered from the nation, the boundary of Egypt. They're at the Red Sea. They've been delivered through the Red Sea. And the very next incident is they come to this place where they cannot drink the water. 1.6 million people. Sorry, we're not talking about, oh, well, we need a lot of water. We're wandering in the desert, 30% humidity. Your skin is dry. Your body is dehydrated. And they come to water, and they see the water, and it isn't even fit to drink. Would you be upset? Would you despair? You would be like Israel. But what does Christ do? Christ, as he's moving with Israel through the wilderness, this is between the Red Sea and Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19. He makes the water sweet. Now, that doesn't mean Coca-Cola. It doesn't mean Sprite. It means fit to drink. You have fresh water. You have salt water. This water is not fit to drink, but miraculously God makes it fit. What is this a sign of? Well, just on the surface, here you go. You can live. But covenantally, it is a testimony of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. But now, because Israel has become like Egypt, he says, I will give you the bitter. There will be no refreshment for you which is a picture. Remember when Christ is upon the cross and they're mocking him and they give him bitter wine like gall. The irony is there. Jerusalem is fed the bitter water because they rejected the one who took upon himself the bitter consequences of their sins. They rejected him. And then trumpet four. The heavens, the sky, the stars are struck. At the time of the Jewish war between 66 and 70 AD, four Roman emperors died in rather illustrious fashion. In the scriptures, the stars, the moon, the sun are symbolic for rulers of earth. And even in Revelation chapter 12, it is told that Satan will bring down with him those stars It was not just Israel who was to be condemned. But the whole world, in like fashion, all who reject the Lord's anointed. Whether high or low, powerful or weak, there is but one clear exhortation in Scripture related to responding to Christ that is faithful, and that is to what? Come and kneel before his throne. Bring your gifts before him. Let the wise men be your guide. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And now that he sits upon the throne, those who reject him have the thrones taken from them. Sun, moon, and the stars represent rulers who reject him. And their lights no longer shine. Satan himself, the morning star. That most glorious angel cast down from heaven as Christ dies and is raised upon him. The third day. What we find is judgment upon a nation and upon her great city. These are trumpet blasts against the city of Jerusalem, judgment for the rejection of Christ and his ministry of reconciliation. (coughs) This is the elevation of warning and woe and judgment, because they will not heed. Parents, maybe you're in that bad habit of going, I'm gonna count to three. And what do your children always do? (laughs) They wait to three. What did you think they were going to do? Of course they're waiting to the last minute. Because they think that mere obedience is all that is required. This is the law of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. They did not keep the law. They sought to honor and glorify themselves. And so when the Messiah came and to receive a suffering Messiah, there needs to be some measure of humility, right? You must repent of your sins, as John said. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. But how can you repent if you are already righteous in your own eyes? So Christ says, the well of no need of a doctor. So what must the church do? They must tell the world, you are sick. Woe to you. And oftentimes we present the gospel and we say, well, you know, you're probably not that bad. No! <laughs> okay, so you're going to people who aren't murderers unless you have a prison ministry. Maybe you are going to murderers. But most of the people we go to live in nice homes. They have relatively obedient children. They've got fairly good jobs. They're sort of middle-class America. And there is nothing in their lives that points them to woe. And then they read the scriptures. And oftentimes people put the scriptures down. Why? Because all of a sudden it's like, oh, by the way, you have cancer. The world doesn't want to hear that. I have this nagging shoulder injury right now. And I don't want anyone to tell me, you're going to have to have surgery. I'm just going to see if it gets better, right? Is that not the most manly, masculine, stupid thing you've ever heard of? Yes. And so often we we look at these things and we put our confidence and trust in the walls of the city that we have made and not Christ who is our only refuge. When Pharaoh was in his Whatever palace on that night in which the angel of death passed do you think he had any fear that his son would die and then he goes into his little son's room and there he is dead nine times even ten Christ through Moses said Pharaoh you must pay homage to the true king of heaven and earth and he said I am the king of heaven and earth thank you very much And it's not just Pharaoh. There are many little emperors, aren't there? Many little kings. And oftentimes we are little kings in our own hearts. And when these woes and these trumpets blast, and when this judgment was foretold upon Israel, prior to the writing of the book of Revelation, they went, no, I don't want to hear it. The city walls are strong. We have the temple. Abraham is our father. But Abraham was not their father. And so it isn't just a woe, thirdly, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. What do we read here in verse 13? There is another angel, a fifth angel, saying, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Now, earlier in Revelation, we looked at earth and it meant land, and most likely that land that is Jerusalem. But Jerusalem is in the center. It is a cosmopolitan city. And at that time, there were Jews all over the earth, One million Jews were trapped in Jerusalem. Almost all of them killed. The rest were taken into captivity. What is happening or what has happened to Jerusalem will happen to the nations. What happened in that cataclysmic universal flood will happen again, not with water, but what? Fire. The unquenchable, hot fire that doesn't consecrate but consumes. And so the days of polite invitation, they have ended. In fact, they never should have been. Pleading, warning, trembling. And the only reason we do not approach the throne of God that way is because we are almost blind to the glory of his throne. This is why we do not use images Because they are impotent and they do not reflect an all-consuming fire that is our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we, by nature, want to put God in a frame, in a box. We want to compartmentalize him and we put him over here on our desk while we do all manner of wickedness in our life. And Christ says, I will have all of it. I want every bit of it that the picture of Christ that we are to have and the image of him upon the throne, he ascended and glorious so that we can't even behold him because he is so glorious. That is the warning. You don't need anyone to tell you how dark the night is and the glory of God is shining forth. Much of our preaching, there is no light. There may be heat, Right? Emotionalism. But the one we need to see is Christ. And the message that we need to hear is those who are sinners is woe. And the only way that those three woes will be removed is if you flee to him. All the inhabitants of the earth may be saved if they flee to Christ. What I'm saying is we need to heed the warnings. In Matthew 24, Christ says, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down. Let the one who is pregnant stop nursing and flee. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation. If anyone says to you, look here. Is the Christ or there? Do not believe it. The false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive if possible, even the elect see, I have told you beforehand. Who are the false prophets? Those who say, "Do not worry about the judgment. You know who those men are? It is the men who will say to you that there is no sin problem. You're OK. It's those who will tell you to live your best life now without any regard to sin whatsoever or who from their crystal cathedrals declare we don't talk about sin. You know why? Because it will bring viewership down. My goal is not and ought not be to see the church full of people who don't know the truth but who are there because they have come there because they want to seek the ark of safety. And that is what the church is. And may it never be said of Reformation OPC or you that we had confidence in the false doctrines of this earth. We need to heed the warning. We need to run to that place of refuge and safety so that we might flee from the wrath that is to come. And we need to rest secure once we are there in Christ's finished and eternal work. Let's pray. Oh Lord.